It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, God is out of my life. How do I get him back in? Coming up in this episode, right and wrong have become blurred. When I declare what's right for me, I generally expect those around me to accept my judgment. This doesn't work with God. He sets our standards, period. So if the choices of my life that I want to follow bring me away from him, is there a way back? Or am I destined for failure? Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. Grateful to be with you. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Folks, you know, it's hard to stay focused, especially when that focus requires attention to be given to something that's different and challenging. As Christians living in this 21st century, our responsibility is, as Jesus said when he was only 12 years old, to be about our Father's business. As clear as this objective is, we, sometimes because we're imperfect, get tripped up and lose our focus. Thank God for his grace given to us through Jesus. But what about other times when it's not just a typical misstep? What about when we fall, not just into careless or impetuous wrongdoing, but into a full-blown choice that leads us toward evil? What do we do to help us come to our senses and not only retract the wrongdoing, but decisively get ourselves back onto the path of God-honoring thoughts, words, and deeds? The immediate context of our theme text helps us focus. John is writing this after the destruction of the temple and the ransacking of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. He is of a sober mind, seeing the closing of the initial period of the gospel. He is the last of the apostles and warning all to stay the course. And Rick, this was probably written in, what, around A.D. 90 range? Yeah, commentators differ on that, but A.D. 90, 100, something, something like that. So it is definitely a late writing. So let's just, let's get into it. First John chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 17, we'll take verse 15 first. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So notice, there's no middle ground in what John is saying. He, you, you love the world, it, you don't have the love of the Father. It's, it's like one or the other. It's, so it, it reminds us of, of Joshua. Remember in Joshua 24, 15, when he's talking to Israel before they're going to cross the Jordan, he says, choose you this day who you will serve. You're going to serve either the idols or you're going to serve God Almighty. That's the kind of thing that John is saying here. Let's look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there are three things about our sinful selves that we need to stand against. Yeah, the desire of our eyes, the desire of our flesh, and boastful pride in our human lives. And verse 17 says, The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Well, Rick, what did John mean about the world is passing away? 
it's over 1900 years <laughs> later than when he wrote this. It is. And you think, why? Was he, was he off? Well, remember, the structure of society did pass away with the ransacking of Jerusalem and the scattering of Israel to all the nations. So he was right in, in his time frame, but it's also prophetically looking at the end times. So you've got two applications there, but he was right in his end times. So all of this comes down to a simple equation. All sinful, worldly thinking and actions ultimately bring death, but doing the will of God ultimately brings life. To illustrate these three things and how they can bring us away from God, we will use some parables, not the main lessons, of three parables of Jesus. And now let's begin with the desires of our eyes. So the first parable we're going to use as an illustration, again, not the main lesson of the parable, but, but a principle of the parable, is the parable of the talents. We're going to drop into this account where Jesus is describing the excuses of the one talent servant and how the master responds. Remember, one servant was given one talent, one was given two, the other was given five, and the, and, and, and the master said, go work with these while I'm gone. Well, the one talent servant didn't do anything with it, and he's giving excuses. This is where we start the parable to draw the principle. Matthew 25, verses 24 to 28. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. So Rick, what's the parable principle here? So this one talent servant saw, remember you said the desire of our eyes, he saw only what he wanted to see. He had no confidence in his master's confidence in his own abilities. He ignored that, and he just was overwhelmed by the, by the moment, so to speak. Narrow thinking and fear of a perceived failure provoked this individual to seek out a convenience, low effort, and self-centered solution. He defied his master's command, and then he tried to justify his defiance. And so the principle here is he looked at things through his own eyes and he assessed them and didn't listen to what the instructions were, but he drew his own conclusions based on what he saw. Well, have I allowed my own narrow sight, thinking, and perceived fear to draw me away from my Father and my Lord Jesus? Am I now drawn to whatever rationalized convenience I can see and act upon? Are my eyes taking me away from my target? And that, that's such an important aspect to this thing here. We don't want to get into that. And, and our topic is, if I've let God out of my life, perhaps it's because of what we see. Am I going down that road? Am I reacting in that way? This is really, really important. Now let's go to the desires of our flesh. So the next parable is the parable of the prodigal son. And we're using these three parables as, as a baseline, and we're going to come back to their stories and apply them in the, in the following three segments. So the parable of the prodigal son, we look at this account right from the start as Jesus describes what the younger son does and how this younger son will end up failing miserably. And this is in Luke chapter 15, verses 9, uh, 11 to 16. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So Rick, he's saying, give me my money. I want it now. It's premature. It's immature. It's selfish. And it's egocentrical. Yep. (laughs) Well, we have a problem in the world today. People follow their own selfish ways and may end up with depression, suicidal thoughts, and live empty lives. We see this described in the parable with this younger son. Yeah, it really is. And and again, this is becomes the desire of the flesh. Like you said, give me my money, give it to me now. Well, his father's not even dead. His father's not even dying. And you have him saying this. So, you know, this is really out of sorts. And it really does have to do a lot with the desires of our flesh. So what's the parable principle? Well, this wayward son was brash, like you said. He was brash in his arrogant desire to pursue any and every desire of his own flesh, incidentally with his father's money. His desire for self-satisfaction overrode his own self-respect, as well as any respect he had for his father. And Rick, it's kind of funny and yet sad. Someone in my family did this very thing. One of my sisters asked my mom for her inheritance early, and my mom laughed and said, what inheritance? (laughs) This was years before my parents died. Yeah, it, that, 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 look, it's sad that that happened. I've, I've, I knew somebody else who did the same kind of thing. So those kinds of things do happen. We get so full of ourselves, and that's what we need to be avoiding here. The desires of our flesh, they can draw us away from serving God. Well, that brings us to our next question. Have I allowed my own desire for self-satisfaction to break my allegiance and service to my Father and to my Lord Jesus. So we're just touching on each of these parables to put the principle in place. The first, the lust of the eyes, or the desire of the eyes, it was the parable of the talents, and what that servant saw. He saw things his own way. Here, the desire of our flesh in this parable of the prodigal son, he did things to serve himself and himself only. And you're asking this question, do I ever get this quest for self-satisfaction that overrides anything else of importance and end up out of my spiritual life. And folks, we've seen it happen and it can continue to happen. So we have to be careful and we have to watch. So what about the boastful pride in our own human lives? Going to our third parable will be the parable of the sower. We're going to drop into this account at the end when Jesus is explaining what the symbols in the parable mean, and remember the sower sowed seeds, and some fell by the wayside, on the rocky ground, on the thorny ground, and then finally on the good ground. And so now he's describing uh, what all of this means in Mark 4, verse 14, and go to 16 to 19. The sower sows the word. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they heard the word, immediately received it with joy, and they had no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when afflictions or persecution arise because of the word, immediately they fall away. 
and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So what's the parable principle? All right, so in this parable of the sower, those who received and then walked away from the word were overwhelmed by the distractions of this world. We're talking about the boastful pride of our human lives. The cost of the word was not worth being classified as different than everyone else. So you kind of stay with the flow because that's the pride of your human life. The joy of the word was not worth giving up their perceived value of earthly connections and ambitions and accomplishments. So as wonderful as the word of God was in this parable, it wasn't wonderful enough to overcome the pride of those individuals, even though they had an appreciation for it. So there's a deceptiveness here, Jonathan, we have to be wary of and watch out for in our own Christian lives. We can be drawn away from serving God by giving into this. Have I allowed my engagements in this life to override and disconnect my loyalty to my Father and my Lord Jesus? Good question. These are mirror questions. You have to ask these questions, looking in the mirror, and ask, do I allow this to happen? Do I decide to be a Christian sometimes? But then, in other certain environments, like, well, you know, I can just put that aside for right now. Because once we start to put it aside a little, Jonathan, it's easier to put it aside more. So we've got these three parables. The parable of the talents. The, the desire of the eyes, the parable of the prodigal son, the desires of our flesh, and the parable of the sower, the boastful pride of our human lives. They're giving us the principles of what we need to look at and say, how do we avoid getting into this huge, huge rut? So finding my way back to God based on these three parables, on this introduction, if you will, what do we have so far? The first step in finding a path back to God is to realize that I am currently way off track, asking, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And where has it led me? Is a good start to become reconciled with God. We have to start somewhere. So asking those important questions is always the best place to start. So it's sobering to see how many ways we can deceive ourselves into walking away from God. Thank God for his grace. With such a peril-filled overview in place, how do we take specific steps to change our destructive course? Well, getting specific requires us to hone in on some practical scriptural examples and solutions. We're going to look at one scriptural example that fits each of the three challenges with our eyes, with our flesh, and with our pride. Our first example will be of a follower of Jesus who hadn't truly left his former self behind. He just was hanging on and hanging on, and we're going to see what happened in a moment. As we open up the practical application of these three ways we can sinfully walk away from God, let's frame them in the context of selfishness. And selfishness is a big deal. And face it, folks, we all have selfishness. The question is, to what degree does that selfishness override our spiritual desire and our spiritual lives? So we're going to be taking a look at three examples of of selfish behavior from 
the uh, YouTube video called Six Examples of Good and Toxic Selfishness. We're not talking about the good part. We're going to be talking about the toxic part. part. And this is from Beyond Blue. So this is our first example of selfishness, first toxic example. Lack of fellow feeling. Selfish people find it challenging to show care and concern to people around them, including their close relations and partners. This is because they are always concentrated on themselves. They see every other person as a distraction to their target, and they don't mind cutting anyone from their lives if they are trying too much to bring them to care for others. With this attitude, it makes it extremely difficult for selfish people to maintain relationships, because no one would love to be in a relationship where there is no love, care, and trust. So, so let's remember that theme, that lack of feeling for your fellow human beings. And as we look at this coming example, and again, we're going to go in the same order that we went with the parables. This is going to be the desire of our eyes. And the example we're going to use is Simon the Magician. Now, Simon the Magician came to Christianity through Philip. We will see him as an example of one who proclaimed but did not live his Christianity. Simon was a magician and a showman. The people called him the great power of God, and they were captivated by him. So we're going to drop in on this account in Acts chapter 8, verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Well, Rick, Simon the magician was constantly uh, amazed by Philip. But Simon created many different tricks and illusions to put people in awe of him. But his illusions were all fake. And see, the thing is, there was a great difference in what he saw that he did to get people to be impressed versus Philip. Philip's real miracles and real message of real salvation were all due to the real man, Christ Jesus. So there's a genuineness in what Philip was doing. And Simon believed and was just as amazed by Philip as the people had been amazed by him. So that's the the basis of where this account begins. Now, the apostle Peter arrives in town, and he lays his hands on some to give them the Holy Spirit. So now we're going to go in this account, go down to Acts chapter 8, verses 18 to 24. Let's do just 18 to 19 right now. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So what happened here? He saw what the apostle Peter did. He saw this and said, this is awesome. So now we're looking at the desire of Simon's eyes. Simon saw the miracles and he thought they were astonishing. But then he saw the bestowing of the Holy Spirit by which the miracles could occur. And that he saw this is the gold mine. This is, you know, the old proverb of the goose that laid the golden egg. Well, that's what he sees here. <laughs> and, you know, unfortunately, Jonathan, this sounds a little bit like some churches that are really money motivated. Won't get into that now, but it kind of sounds like that. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Back to Simon. He says to Peter, how much? So I'll pay you so I can do this. Here's Peter's response, Acts 8, 20 to 21. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. So Simon's desire to take the gift of bestowing the Spirit as a source for profit was a blatant sin. 
that removed Simon the magician from God's grace. This is an important reaction by Peter. He says, may your silver perish with you. You have no part or portion in what we are doing. These are really strong words. Peter continues in Acts 8, 22 and 23. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you were in the gull of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Commentator Albert Bond states, gall of bitterness means excessive bitterness. The phrase is used respecting idolatry. Sin is thus represented as a bitter or poisonous thing, a thing ruinous in its character. So that when you see that phrase, the gall of bitterness, you're seeing something pretty powerful here. So you, you see this, and, and Peter makes this proclamation, you know, and you can see Peter, there's no mincing of words. He is clear, he is focused, and he is, is precise in, in what his judgment is here because it's wrong. It's just wrong. Acts 8.24 is Simon's response. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That is a good response for somebody who had gone down such a bad road. He's like, oh man, what have I done? And he asks for prayers. But here's the problem. Simon saw only what he wanted to see. And just like the principle from the parable of the talents, remember that servant saw only what he wanted to see and what, not what his master had at, it commanded him to do. Simon's reaction upon being exposed was to ask for help through prayer. Great start. Well, it seems Simon wanted to get his former glory back that he walked away from when he became a follower of Christ. Yeah, so he becomes a follower of Christ, and he starts on the road, and it starts going pretty, pretty well until the temptation for all of the good stuff, all of the big stuff, all of the glory, all of the attention. He saw it, and he jumped at it, and it was a jump that he should have never taken. An important question, Rick. Would I react the same way if what I see, what draws my attention, is exposed as a godless path? As bad as Simon's judgment was, his reaction we can look at and take a little bit of heart in. And Jonathan, your question is really important. Would I react that same way? Would I have that same sense to say, pray for me? Now, whether that was sincere on his part or not, I don't know. But let's assume it was. And let's assume that we have to look at ourselves if we're walking away from God— would we react that same way and say, oh my goodness, wait, wait, where am I? Pray for me. Let, let's go to a, a quote from uh, Frederick Koenig, just about putting things in perspective in terms of uh, accepting godliness into our lives. We tend to forget that happiness doesn't come as a result of getting something we don't have, but rather of recognizing and appreciating what we do have. Simon had it all, when he was following Philip. But he thought he could get something bigger, which was false. And he ended up walking away from the grace of God. So that's a great quote to keep us in perspective. Uh, this reminds me of an experience I had in the past as a young adult. I was creating a business with a good friend from high school. It was about computerized dating with computers in bar establishments across the country. He was an engineer, and we had recruited a computer specialist to oversee the network. My job was supposed to be research and placing computers in the bars. Shortly after we began this endeavor, I found the Lord and dedicated myself to him. I realized that the business was a conflict of interest. 
I was sure that immoral behavior would have run rampant, so I had to walk away. My friend thought I was crazy and was not happy with me, but I have no regrets, Rick, because it would not be in line with Christian principles. It's important to give up things that are not in harmony with God. I tell you, John, I got to admit, when you started the story, I was like, wait, where's he going with this? <laughs> but, it, and, and you know, it's such a, a good example. That's where you were, what you were doing. And then you found the call of the gospel and said, wait a minute, A and B don't match, don't mix. So I have to leave that behind. There is no middle road. Simon was trying to combine two, two worlds. He saw things that he liked in both places, said, I can combine them. You can't. You just can't. And when sometimes we get stuck, that's what happens. And then we start to walk away from God, and we start to become unspiritual. What do we do with that? Well, Simon asked for prayers. Let's, let's expand on that. James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who was sick and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Well, this is referring to someone who was spiritually sick and was asking for help. What does that look like for us? We should seek counseling and advice from a trusted and humble spiritual leader. What the scripture says, anointing, anointing him with oil, oil represents the Holy Spirit. So a trusted counselor with God's spirit will study the Bible with us, discuss our troubles, and pray with us for God's help to overcome our weaknesses. And see, that puts it in such a powerful perspective. Folks, if you find yourself walking away from God, being drawn to the things that you see, be humble enough to ask for prayers, for help, and guidance from those who you see as trusted, humble spiritual leaders who follow scriptural principles only. That's where we want to be that's the first step, and that's a hard step because that requires this vulnerability that nobody likes. So the thing is we must realize that what we see in life, and there's a lot to see, what we see, what we focus on, can bring us up or bring us down, and that the light of truth is a privilege. And Jonathan, your, your previous example just nails that down. You had a privilege and had to leave something behind as a result. And I think you gladly left it behind because, I did, I did. Because the privilege was so much greater. Well, Jesus explains this privilege to us in Luke eleven thirty three to 36. Let's do, just do verse 33 to start. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. I mean, if you have the light of the gospel, it belongs on the lampstand. That's where it belongs. That's what Jesus is saying. And now he begins to explain what can go wrong with that? Verses 34 to 36 of Luke 11. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illuminates you with its rays. Well, what is our focus? If our eye is bad, what can we do to cleanse it? And that's the key. And Jesus brings this up and he says the eye is, 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 is sort of the window of your life. So folks, what we see can bring us, just march us right away from God or right towards him. Make your choice. Go and be humble. Get the help 
from those who can spiritually help you. Not your best friends. Those who can spiritually help you. That's the key here. And, and we look at that, and, and that's how you can begin to cleanse the darkness of your own eye. Let's look at Jesus' own victory over the desire of the eyes. And this is kind of exciting to me because we look at Jesus, and the three examples we're going to use were at the beginning of his ministry, before he had all the experience, and these are the three temptations right after he's baptized and he goes to the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, is going to be the example of the desire of the eyes and how Jesus handled it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Well, what Satan is saying is, can you see it? This is what you came for, isn't it? He showed him. He displayed it for his eyes to see. This is something that Jesus did come for. What's Jesus' reaction? Matthew 4, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So, Rick, what Jesus is saying is, You can't give it to me. I'm taking it from you. (laughs) And Jesus' only reaction was to quote scripture, which showed where his gaze was set. And so, you know, you say, Okay, the reaction was to quote scripture. Well, what if I can't quote scripture like Jesus? And and look, folks, none of us can. Let me just clue you right here. None of us can. Well, what do we do? Well, we might not be able to recall Scripture that easily, but we can refocus on Jesus himself. And interestingly, that's what it tells us to do in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Focus and refocus on Jesus over and over again. So if you can't get the scripture, you just think about Jesus, put yourself into the account of Jesus, and watch him and learn from him each and every step of your way, because you're walking the wrong direction, and we need to turn. If you turn your head away from the direction you're walking, you're going to stop walking that way. And that's what you do. You refocus where you're going. So, Jonathan, finding my way back to God when the desire of my eyes is evil, what do we have? Whenever we have strayed, humbly requesting prayers is a critical, important step. Furthermore, recovery is not possible unless we look away and walk away from whatever it is that has drawn our gaze and attention. Focusing on Jesus and meditating on his journey and experience can supply us with needed strength. And man, that is such an important first step. Focus on the Lord, ask for help, and get prayers so that you can be guided back. You know, it's scary to know that our focuses in life can devastate our Christianity. It's comforting to know that there is a way back. So, there are challenges in the desire of our eyes. What about the desires of our flesh, our humanity? As we begin to look at the desires of our own human mind and body, it's important to recognize that having basic human desires does not in any way give us permission or authority to act on them. This simple realization is in direct contradiction to our present social structure, which always tells us we are most important. And boy, that is the phenomenally powerful message that's always there. You're most important.
do what's right for you. It's all about you. Folks, that's how we walk away from God. Face the fact, that's how we walk away from God. We just looked at the desires of our eyes. Now let's look at the desires of our flesh. It's important to acknowledge that the desire of our eyes often opens the, des- the door for the desires of our flesh. So the point here is the two are usually very connected. And in this next scripture really, really shows us how that works. Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 to 30, this is Jesus preaching uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you that whoever looks at a woman and cherishes lustful thoughts has already in his heart become guilty with regard to her. If therefore your eye, even the right eye, is a snare to you, tear it out and away of it and away with it. It is better for you that one member should be destroyed rather than that your whole body should be thrown into Gehenna, which is a symbol of second death. And if your right hand is a snare to you, cut it off and away with it. It is better for you that one member should be destroyed rather than that your whole body should go into Gehenna. So this is a powerful, powerful process that Jesus mentions your eye first. What you see can be such a snare. And if you can cut it off there, great. But otherwise, what you do, that's the desire of the flesh and be carrying it out. You need to understand that you, you cut it off at what you see, you're in better shape because if you get to what you're doing, it becomes much, much worse. The importance of looking away from sinful things and toward Jesus cannot be understated. Rick, we have so much distraction in our world, and we're not saying it's easy at all. Keep refocusing. Yeah. Always, always, always refocus. Turn your head from where you're going because you won't keep going that direction. Let's go back to six examples of good and toxic selfishness from Beyond Blue, and we're talking about the toxic examples. Here's the second one, and pay close attention to this because it will really play into our next scriptural example. Being manipulative. Because all they care about is themselves. Greedy people will do anything to make things work in their favor. They don't mind skewing circumstances to their benefit at the detriment of others. They forget that playing such malicious tricks on people is likely to make people see them as untrustworthy. When people see you as such, it will be difficult for anyone to have any business dealings with you in the future. Instead, they will avoid you at all costs. So you get a real sense that the idea of being manipulative doesn't do anything good for you or for anyone else. Well, keep that in mind as we look at this next scriptural example, because the consequences of falling deeply into the desires of our flesh are severe. And folks, this is a sober moment that we're going to be looking at this. And just pay close attention, because this is something that gets just taken for granted in our world today, but this is a scriptural example, and it's a hard example of how, of how bad this kind of sin can be. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 5 and 6. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. You do not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And Rick, leaven, as we know, is a symbol of sin. 
the entire church did not call out the immoral relationship. So Paul had to straighten them out as well as the sinner. Yeah, and Paul had to do it by letter. Paul wasn't in the area. And so you, you imagine the time that went by and the damage that was done by allowing the immorality to exist. Folks, as Christians, we have to take a stand amongst ourselves and say certain things are just not possible here. And so as with the parable of the principle of the prodigal son, okay, we, again, the principle of that parable, this wayward brother, in this example, this wayward brother in Christ was brash in his own arrogant desire to pursue the evil desires of his own flesh. His desire for self-satisfaction overrode his own self-respect as well as any respect he had for God, Jesus, and his fellow Christians. There's a manipulative behavior involved in that. There's a selfishness that puts me first, and it's diametrically opposed to the will and way of God. Am I reacting the same way and pursuing human desires that are out of harmony with God? Can I even see what I am doing? See, that's an important question. We may not sin to that degree, but don't let sin fool you. Smaller sins easily lead to larger ones. And if we make it okay, then we open the door for something bigger. And I don't know how this individual got into this, into this problem, but it was major, and it caused a tremendous uproar in the, in the true church, and it needed to be dealt with. So as we look at that, let's, go, let's back up and just let's do, go to a quote from Ritu Gatore about satisfaction. Satisfaction is not always the fulfillment of what you want. It is the realization of how blessed you are for what you have. And it's very similar to Simon the Magician. He was blessed by following Philip and the gospel, but he, he, he threw it away. This individual was in the process of throwing away the goodness and the grace of God because of his absolute immoral behavior. Folks, we can't tolerate such immorality in ourselves. We can't. Don't try this at home. This is not the kind of thing that you do and say, this is okay. No, it's not. It simply isn't. There are lines over which we as Christians are not to cross. Here is just one of several scriptural lists of such lines. This is Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Jonathan, what we have here is this horrible list. It's a horrible list, okay? And, G and, and, and the Apostle Paul says, of which I forewarn you, just as I've already warned you. So it's not, you know, you, you were saying, you know, keep refocusing, keep refocusing. Well, the Apostle, if you watch carefully how he writes, he keeps refocusing them, and he keeps refocusing them. And he's saying, you do these things, and you're essentially locking yourself out of the kingdom of God. Don't go down this road. But folks, sometimes we do. Okay, some of us may be down these roads right here, right now, and you've you've walked away, and you look up and you say, "Well, God is nowhere to be seen. How do I get Him back into my life? What do I need to do?" Well, we already talked about prayer. We talked about going to those who are sound spiritually and scripturally, and 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 the humility that's needed. 
But here we need to soberly realize that our Christianity is most serious, is the most serious commitment in our lives. We, you have to put that back in perspective in terms of refocus. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Don't give in to the desires of the flesh. Keep battling. And it says, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. You know, that, that's something I don't know that we think about enough. When we choose to follow after God through Christ, and then we walk away, we're mocking God. We're mocking his grace for us. That will not happen. There is judgment from God. So we need to turn ourselves so that that judgment can be done because we are repenting and forgiving, be asking for forgiveness for what we have done. All sins, especially those which are deeply immoral, require deep, sincere, complete repentance. Good scripture on this, 2 Corinthians 12, 21. Yes, I am afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence, and I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You have not repented of your impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. And Rick, the word repent means to think differently or afterwards, that is, reconsider, morally feel compunction. For more on repentance, go to episode 1082, How Do I Live a Life of Repentance? Go to ChristianQuestions.com or the Christian Questions app and enter episode 1082 into the search bar. And repentance is such a powerful part of what am I supposed to do? How do I get God back into my life? You look for him. How do you look for him? You repent. How do you repent? You say it, and then you do it. Repentance is not words, it's actions. And then you be humble as we move forward. We need to be humble enough to have the brotherhood walking with us as we recover. You don't do this solo because you need the accountability, the vulnerability, and you need that strength of those around you. James 5, verses 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What a powerful example of how important it is to be there for others, to help pull them out of that fire. Now, they have to want to come out, but we have to be willing to pull them and work with them and walk with them and support them. We all keep talking about refocusing. Let's go back to focusing on Jesus and his own victory over the desire of the flesh. Back to the wilderness, back to the three temptations. This one is an example of putting off the desire of his flesh. Matthew chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Well, Rick, how hungry Jesus must have been after 40 days. And remember, Jonathan, when he was baptized, the Spirit descended upon him. He now had the power of miracles through God's strength. So he could have done what Satan suggested. But what was Jesus' response? But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
Jesus's only reaction was to quote scripture, which showed where his fleshly desire was set. And I like the way you said set. There was a clarity, there was a conformity that said, I am about my father's business. I don't need to eat right now. It's, that's not what I'm here for. And so you have this strength that Jesus puts in place. And again, he goes back to scriptural principle to support what he is set upon. And that's what we need to learn to do. Can't do it like Jesus did, but we can do it with the help of those around us who are spiritually minded if we ask them. Finally, our fellow Christians must recognize and acknowledge sincere and genuine repentance. You know, just because you go way off the deep end doesn't mean you have to stay there. In the example of that individual earlier that who, who was committing that tr- tremendously immoral sin, well, there's a happy ending to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. Rick, so there's evidence. They should have seen he repented. They should have been like, yes, he got it, and he's moving in the right direction. His change was observed. It was felt. That's beautiful. And that's the reaction that we need to have when someone has fallen and they're, and they're clawing their way back in a repentant attitude. And look, because they repent doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. We want to hold them and carry them and encourage them because we don't want anybody falling away from the grace of God. It's just a powerful, powerful example. So those of us around the one who falls have great responsibility as well. So Jonathan, finding my way back to God when the desire of my flesh is evil— what is it? Humble repentance and asking forgiveness are always the first step. In such hard experiences, our actions will always speak louder than our words. Being vulnerable enough to invite spiritually wise among us for help and accountability is a key to our reconciliation path. We have to be willing to ask and follow. Those are the key things. There's a lot of humility involved, and sometimes you feel embarrassed but it's better to feel embarrassed and walk with God than to not feel embarrassed and lose him. Sin that fulfills the desires of the flesh have no place in our lives. Repentance, prayer, and accountability can reconcile us. Sinful desires of the eyes and flesh are dangerous. What about having some pride in what you've accomplished? This is interesting. When, when, when we seek to interpret and understand Scripture, it's important to do so with care. Looking back over a job well done with satisfaction and thanksgiving is a very appropriate and healthy response. It is not at all the same as engaging in the boastful pride of life. Keeping these two things separate is an absolute key to our understanding. So as we move forward, we're going to be now delving into the boastful pride of life. And again, I encourage you, don't try this at home as we delve in. We delve into it from a theoretical perspective only. (laughs) All right? Yes. Uh, So as we begin, let's go back to the examples of good and toxic selfishness from Beyond Blue. And this is our third example of toxic selfishness. And again, pay close attention because it applies very well to the scriptural example. Self-centeredness. Life, to a selfish person, 
is all about himself. They do not recognize when other people need them or when to put the needs of others above theirs. And this always has a fatal result. The funny thing is, the selfish man does not recognize this impending disaster until it is too late. You know, I like the way he said, it always has a fatal result. And really, we have to understand that the boastful pride of life always will have a fatal result. So, Rick, what about the boastful pride in our own human lives? Well, the example we're going to use is the rich young ruler. Now, he approached Jesus with enthusiasm and asked what he needed to do to be part of the kingdom. And Jesus gave him an answer that any Jewish man would understand. The answer was obey God's law as it was represented in the Ten Commandments. And so, you know, you, you get this sense that Jesus gives him a very clear and straightforward answer. We drop into this account where this young man responds to this instruction from Jesus, Mark 10, 20 through 25. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, Rick, an eye of the needle is a small gate for security purposes to the city. You have to unload your camel before entering and then load it again. And a rich man would have several camels. <laughs> and, and, you know, you know, this is for entering the city after hours. And so it is. It's a pain in the neck. And you're right. If you're rich, you've got, okay, 16 camels to go. You know? and, and, and the idea is, is Jesus is saying, we can't be overly attached and what does this all come down to? It comes down to that the, the boastful pride of our human lives, as with the principle from the parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower we were talking about? The, the cost of the kingdom was not worth giving up his earthly riches, connections, ambitions, and accomplishments. That's what we see in this rich young ruler. The kingdom was not worth following Jesus, who was obviously a man of God, but he was also obviously a man who had nothing. So this rich young man comes from this background of having so much, and Jesus says, sell everything and come follow me. And he knows very well that Jesus is a man living in essential poverty, and he just couldn't do it. Am I over-cherishing my wealth, accomplishments, and connections at the expense of my Christianity? Do I quietly or overtly cling to owning my stuff? Well, Rick, when we give our lives to God, we turn everything we have over to him, and God gives it back to us to use in his service. That's stewardship. And, you know, you think about this, and did Jesus really mean for him to sell everything that he had? Well, think about it this way. Did God expect Abraham to actually go ahead with and kill his son Isaac, or was God planning on stopping it right from the beginning? He was planning to stop it immediately when he was ready to. And the point is that Jesus is saying to him, your heart has to be detached. So put it all away. It doesn't mean that Jesus was going to make him follow through. It simply meant that Jesus 
needed him to be unattached to those things. And I love your question, do I quietly or overtly cling to owning my own stuff? This rich young ruler did. Jesus saw that and said, you're not fit for the kingdom. The boastful pride in our human lives. That's what it comes down to. A quote from Mahatma Gandhi. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Amen. An observation about the rich young ruler, what he thought and what he did were out of harmony with discipleship. He thought he was in line for the kingdom of God, didn't he? Yeah, he did. As a matter of fact, he heard the answer, you know, and said, hey, I've been keeping the commandments. And he, and he had, because it says Jesus loved him. So he was, had righteousness. But that righteousness was too peppered with pride. And that boastful pride of life, because he had so much, it was too much for him to walk away from. You know, this, this boastful pride of life may be the hardest area of sin for us to identify, as it can be disguised as a mere exaggeration of a good thing. Oh, it's not that bad, you know? Yeah. The Bible tells us to specifically be aware uh, of this, this trap. And, and, and again, when you look at this, this rich young ruler, you realize that uh, he wanted to follow Jesus. He really did. His heart was in the right place, but his pride was bigger than his heart at that point. So let's take a look at, and this, look, this is how, Jonathan, this is how we end up walking away from God instead of towards him, this boastful pride of life. So let's look at an Old Testament scriptural principle that helps us recognize these things. Psalm 19, 12 to 13. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Well, Rick, there are two kinds of sin that dwell within us. First, hidden faults. This kind of sin is part of our very nature. Hard for us to see clearly as they are so natural to us. Such hidden sin is not necessarily are readily seen by others. The second are presumptuous sins. This means arrogant. This kind of arrogant sin is all about outward display and is far more discernible by the actions of our lives. So sometimes this boastful pride of life is something we can't recognize. So that would be the hidden fault. Sometimes it's way out there and we still can't recognize it. Either way, it keeps us from the kingdom. And if we are fixed in our own boastful pride, we cannot be following God. And we need to look up, turn our head from that direction, and go another way. Either way, whether it's a hidden fault or a presumptuous sin, we are assured that God knows both our hidden and external selves. And that's the beauty of this. He knows all of us. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. As always, coming back to God is all about humility and vulnerability. And I love the phrase in that scripture that says, God is faithful. If he has called you, he knows you can. And the only thing that will inevitably get in your way is you. So if I am walking away from God, having been called, it is on me. I can't blame anybody else. It's on me because he knows I have the capacity and I need to turn. And let's go back to James chapter 5 to put this into a better, stronger perspective. James 5, 16. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, Rick, this is why our congregation has weekly testimony meetings to share our struggles and blessings. We need to be vulnerable one with another so we can ask for prayers, help, and encouragement. The body of Christ should be our support system. It should be. And, and you know, our, our congregation does that as well. And, and those testimonies, Jonathan, can really be the key. It's wonderful to study the Word. But when you start to share your experiences and can mutually lift each other up by holding each other up and saying, I'm with you on that, and I can pray for you on that, it changes things. And especially in matters of pride, if we can be vulnerable enough to the body, to those that we fellowship with, it can change because they want us to grow out of that. They don't want us walking away. They want us walking towards. And that's where these scriptures come into play. To overcome the boastful pride of life, we need a no-compromise decision to leave it behind. A no-compromise decision. Romans 6, 12 to 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And Rick, here's something really important for us to think about. In our relationship with our spouses, we should also be vulnerable to share our temptations and weaknesses so we can have each other's support, guidance, and prayers. We should protect our covenant of being one and have each other's backs. Yeah, you know, it's so easy to not say something, and then you have the suspicion of your spouse. If you do say something, you can gain the support of your spouse. Which would you rather have? Take your time on that. Support, support. <laughs> yeah, 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 really. I mean, it, it, it is really simple. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't go there. Don't allow it. Example of that, one last time, Jesus with those three temptations in the wilderness right after his baptism, baptism, here's his own victory over the pride of human life. And this is a great, great example of this. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan is saying, it's all about you, Jesus. Show them so they can see you. And not only is he doing that, he's saying, if you're the Son of God. There's a little dare. If you are, then throw yourself down. The Scripture says. So Satan is actually quoting Scripture. And folks, be aware. Satan knows Scripture. Our boastful pride of life can take and twist scripture to fit whatever it is we'd like to do. We need to not fall into that. And Jesus had this opportunity to show what he's made of, and here's what he says. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' only reaction was to quote scripture, which showed that he had any potential pride under the strict control of doing only God's will. How did he do that? He stayed with the scriptural principles in all matters of life. And, and Jonathan, honestly, if anybody had any cause to be proud, it would be Jesus. He's perfect. He's following the will of God. He's got it all. You never met a man who had it all except for Jesus. And yet the humility was startling 
because he would not veer off one degree from following the complete total will of God. All in all, we want our lives to, to be developing spiritual fruit and not fleshly sin. Oh, I, I like this list so much better than the list of the deeds of the flesh. Yeah, and the list of the deeds of the flesh are Galatians 5, I think, 19 to 21. Let's go to the next verses. We didn't quote these right please, after. Yes, please, let's go <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, let's go there. <laughs> Galatians 5, 22 to 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you've crucified something, you have put it to death. If we are walking away from God, we need to turn our heads so we can turn our bodies, so we can turn our will so that we walk back towards him and put to death those passions and desires. So Jonathan, finally, finding my way back to God when I've fallen into the boastful pride of my own humanity. Let's wrap this up. Once we begin to recognize this major fault, we need to clarify whether we want glory for ourselves or if we want it all to go to God. Decide, be prayerful, vulnerable, and action-oriented to reaffirm your Christianity before God and men. So, Jonathan, as we begin to wrap this up, it's a really simple thing. We all can begin walking down a road that brings us away from our God and away from our Lord decide. Decide. Do I want to be on this road? Why am I doing this? What's happening? Get help. Look for those who are spiritually and scripturally sound and humble to help draw you back. Rely on those who you can spiritually rely on in terms of fellowship. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your thoughts. Change your actions. Put yourself back and repent. Ask for forgiveness and then live the forgiveness. Put it all in place. You can recover if you've walked away, but you're the only one who can make the choice to recover. It's up to you. And the question is, if I'm in that situation, what do I do now? Do I choose to stand and fight? Or do I choose to let Satan just take me away? Your choice. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, why does God let the innocent suffer? We've had a horrific school shooting, and that's the question on so many minds. Talk to you then. <laughs>